All right. I'm so excited to have you here tonight. I'm so excited about this passage. And this passage, now we are finally in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to see the Apostle Paul. He himself, he, he gets really excited. Let me show you what I mean. Will you remain standing as I read this evening's text for you? Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. Here's what God's word says. It says, For this reason, now all this stuff we've talked about over these last few weeks, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been has excuse me as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit here it is verse 6 this mystery is that the gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel let's stop right there have a seat you know, I am excited to have you here. I'm excited for lots of different reasons. One of which is, uh, if I'm just going to be a little honest with you, I spent the last couple hours listening to the Mariners come from behind to win a playoff game, and now they advance. And so I, I know most of you aren't baseball folks, but, uh, but I was in the parking lot there as the game finished. And if you were here, you would have seen me like clapping like an idiot and screaming in my car, right? And so uh, it's been a good day for baseball, and I hope it's going to be a good night as we open up God's Word. In fact, I had already prepared to set things up for you by telling you a little bit about uh, a baseball tradition that exists in the, the games that I coach. In fact, uh, just over a week ago, my son, his, uh, his eight-year-old team, his six, seven, and eight-year-old team, their rookies team, they had their last game. And these kids, they've been playing their hearts out. In fact, when we started in August, they, uh, they had some work to do. <laughs> It was a rough first few weeks, and our rough first game was, uh, we were just, uh, me and the other coach was like, oh boy, it's going to be a long fall ball season, right? But I'll tell you what, by the time we got to the end, we were coaching a completely different team. These kids, they had put some things together, they were playing some fun baseball, it was great. In our last game, they were so pumped up, like we gave them a pregame pump up talk where they're like all gathered around, like, hey, you guys ready to hit? And these little kids are like, yeah, right? They're like, you guys ready to throw? Yeah! You guys ready to play? And they're just like, they're going nuts, right? We could have said like, hey, are you ready to conquer the world? And they would have done it. They were so excited. And that's actually what Paul is doing in this passage right here. You see, chapter 3, the entirety of chapter 3, Paul is trying to pray. He's just like in, in any prayer meeting that maybe you've been to, when everyone's talking instead of praying, well, that this, this text, it's front-loaded. And so the first 13 verses, he's trying to get to verse 14 where he actually prays. If you have your Bible open, you'll see that actually verse 1, he says, for this reason, and then he says it again, verse 14, because he's finally getting to his actual prayer. He's just got all this stuff that he's got to get out because of the passion he has for the gospel. He, he has all these things that he has to say because of who he is, and who he is is because of what God has done in his life, and that ultimately is our big idea tonight. Tonight, we are going to look at not what is a prescriptive text, not a text that tells you how to live. We're going to get there in chapters 4, 5, and 6. What we're looking at is what we're going to call a descriptive text, a text that we just, we see a, 
the life of someone who is thrilled about what God has done in their life. And we see the way they live. We hear their heart. We see their passion. And in fact, I, I titled this evening's message, The Heart of the Church, because if every church member shares this heart, then what we have is we have the heart of the church. Here's your big idea. What we're going to see is that what Christ has done for you changes what you do for others. What we're going to see is we just we get a glimpse of Paul and his passion. We get a glimpse of Paul and his excitement. We get a glimpse of Paul as he's getting riled up. He's trying to pray, but he's not there yet. We get this little glimpse of Paul. We get this description of a life that is passionate because of the gospel. And, and I want you to have that same life. That's my goal this evening. My goal this evening is for you to see what has been done for you in the gospel. And I want you to see that the, the overflow, the result, the, the, the chemical reaction in your life spiritually is that you begin to think like Paul thinks in these first six verses. How, how does the gospel impact your life? How does the gospel change the way you relate to others? How does the gospel change the way you think about your relationship with God day in and day out? Does it really make a dramatic difference in your life? I think this text descriptively shows us the kind of difference it makes. So let's open up to Ephesians chapter 3, finally chapter 3. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3. Let's start to dig through this. Let's start to discover that what Christ has done for you changes what you will do for others. And let's start right here in verse 1. And here's what we're going to see. The, the very beginning, we're going to see that when we see what God has done in Christ, first and foremost, we become willing slaves of Christ. When you understand what God has done in the gospel of Jesus Christ for you, you become a willing slave. Now you might be think, saying, Mike, I thought the gospel was supposed to make me free. I, spot, I thought I was supposed to experience this freedom. I, I've been set free, right? Th these are the passages that come to my mind. For freedom, you have been set free. We should be free. Why are you telling me I'm a slave? Well, let me show you. Let me show you how Paul thought about himself. Let me show you some texts that, that Paul uses to describe himself. First and foremost, Ephesians 3, verse 1. Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul is not speaking metaphorically here. Paul is in prison. <laughs> this is one of what, what's called the prison epistles. Now, Paul is not like just speaking straight metaphorically. He actually is in prison, and he is in prison because of the preaching of the gospel ultimately to the Gentiles. It got him in trouble with the Jews, but it was his call to the Gentiles that got him in trouble. But Paul considered himself a prisoner, but look at what he says. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Jews. They're the ones that originally arrested him and laid hands on him. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Romans who ultimately took him captive. He doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar, to whom he appealed when he was on trial and he was appointed to stand before. No, Paul is not a prisoner of the Jews or of the Romans or of Caesar. Paul is a prisoner, look at the text, of Christ. And this isn't foreign language for Paul. Philemon chapter 1, verse 1, there's only one chapter and so it's just one verse. Paul writes, he says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ. The same book, verse 9, 
says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He says, I, Paul, an old man, now a prisoner also for Christ. Ephesians, same book we're preaching. Chapter four, verse one. Paul says, therefore, or I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Second Timothy chapter one, verse eight. Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Uh, Paul certainly was a prisoner in chains. You aren't a prisoner in chains. You are not locked behind bars. But you and I both, if we understand the impact of the gospel of our li- in our lives, we begin to think a lot like Paul here. We say, I am a prisoner for Christ. You're not behind bars, but maybe you're going through really difficult circumstance. You're not in chains, but maybe you have situations in your life that are overwhelming and you just keep asking God to get you out of those situations. Say, God, why do I have to go through something so difficult? Listen, if Paul was in your situation, he would look at that as being a prisoner for Christ. He would understand that every circumstance he faces, it is because he is a prisoner for Christ. He would understand that he is exactly where Christ wants him to be. Which means that you... In whatever difficulty you face, listen very carefully, you are exactly where Christ wants you to be. He's placed you there as the sovereign Lord of your life. I thank God you're not behind bars. I thank God you're not shackled. But I also thank God when you and I face various trials and tribulations because we know that the testing of our faith, it produces endurance. And when that endurance has run its course, it makes us complete, mature, lacking nothing. This is Paul. Paul says, I am a prisoner for Christ. How about you? Do you look at your relationship with Christ and you say, well, I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. That means he has to rescue me from everything difficult that I ever face. That means that I shouldn't have any health issues. I shouldn't have any relational issues. Everything should just be like a cakewalk. Life should be easy. Nope. See, when you understand what God has done for you in Christ, you begin to think differently. You begin to see yourself, not in terms of, ah, everything's easy. No, you say, everything is me being a prisoner for Christ. This isn't the only language that Paul used to describe himself, though. Paul didn't just call himself a prisoner. We should not just consider ourselves prisoners for the Lord, but I think this goes even further. We should consider ourselves slaves to the Lord. And Paul loves this term. We should consider ourselves slaves. Let me give you another rapid-fire list of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, that that magnum opus of the Apostle Paul, he says, Paul, a servant, some versions say slave. The Greek word is doulos. It means someone who is servile. It means someone who is completely subjugated and controlled by someone else. It means that they have no ability on their own to make their own decisions or govern their own life. This isn't just I'm a servant and then I punch in and I punch out. No, this is a slave. It says, I, Paul, a doulos, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. This is a memory verse right here. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He says, If I am trying to, or excuse me, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, here it is, I would not be a slave of Christ. So I don't care what people think about me. What I care about is what my master thinks about me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of, God's, of, of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. The apostle Paul did not just look at every situation he found himself in and say that I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul looked at every experience he had, every interaction he had, every opportunity he had, and he said, in this moment, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. He wasn't saying, you know, I'm just locked behind bars. Oh, woe is me. No, he, he said that if I'm locked behind bars, I'm going to preach the gospel to the guards. He says, if the mobs turned against me, I'm going to go to the next city. And in the next city, instead of being uh, timid and cowering in fear, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the same thing I did at the last city. I'm going to preach about Christ regardless. Why? Because he understood the significance of what God had done in Christ for him. And so he became a willing slave to God. I wonder how often we think about ourselves in this light in 21st century America. Well, we're so used to a consumeristic culture where we, we go to church for what we get out of it. We, we've been fed sometimes by sincere teachers, the, the, the kind of teaching that is, well, I'm a Christian because of what's in it for me. What is God going to do for me? Doesn't Jesus love me? And all of that, God does amazing things. He has rescued us from the pit of our sin and damnation, and he has rescued us and lifted us up into the heavenly places. But at the end of the day, that is meant to change the way we think. Not, not saying, what is God going to do for me? But now, how can I live as a slave to Christ? This is where our text begins. When we see what God has done in Christ, we become willing slaves of Christ. Let me ask you just to evaluate your day. How much of your time today did you spend thinking about what you wanted for yourself how many of your words today were about what you wanted to convey? How many of your actions were aimed at you achieving what you wanted? And how, much, how many of those actions and how many of those thoughts and how many of those words were intentionally saying, I am doing this as a slave of Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, this is where maturity begins. This is where Christ-likeness is formed. This is where church becomes something so much more than a, a service where we all come and, and are spectators. The Christian faith is meant to be lived out every day in this constant reality of we are now slaves to Christ.
Here's the good news. Our master is, he's a wonderful master. Here's the good news. Our master is not an abusive master. He's not a domineering master. He, he is a master that has rescued us from a different slavery. See, we were once slaves to sin. And now we're slaves to the Savior. We were once slaves to our flesh and to the world, but now we've been freed so that we can be slaves of righteousness, living in light of what God has done for us. Well, let's keep going. Not only do we become willing slaves of Christ when we see what God has done for us in Christ, but, but the text continues. It says, also, when we see what God has done in Christ, we become willing stewards of grace. Look at verses 2 through 5. We're going to see that we become willing stewards of grace. Here's what Paul says. He says, he says assuming, assuming something. What, is it, what, what does he hope that the Ephesians are assuming? And what does he hope that we are assuming, or that he can assume of us? He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now let's talk about this, this word stewardship. When you think of a steward, what do you think of? You think of someone who has been given responsibility over something that someone else owns. So, so a steward, they're not the owner. They are a manager. They are, here's the word, an administrator. Paul, the, the word here is to be an administrator. Paul is a steward or an administrator. He takes care of what belongs to God. And so this stewardship, I want you to see, the stewardship that Paul has, the stewardship was received by grace. The stewardship was received by grace. The end of verse 2, he says, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Now, notice what Paul says here. He says, this stewardship was given. He doesn't say that he earned it. He doesn't say that he, he achieved a certain level of godliness, and so God was like, okay, now you've really, you've really done a lot of good work. You've really cleaned up your act. Now I can start to use you. Here's, here's a stewardship. You've earned it. This stewardship was given. Do you remember when this stewardship was given? This stewardship was given to the Apostle Paul when he was traveling to Damascus. And while he was traveling to Damascus, he had orders in his hand, papers in his hand from the synagogue. And those papers gave him permission to go door to door and drag out Christians. And in fact, the text says that he was breathing murderous threats against them. Paul wasn't doing a lot of godliness in terms of his lifestyle in that moment. He was completely against Christ. He, he, was, he was living with such animosity and hatred that his, when he talked, he couldn't help but just have words of vile words of murderous threats. And it was in that moment that God gave him this stewardship. It was in that moment that God reached down and pulled him out of the mire, and saved him. 
This is a sin for you and I. I, I. In fact, I don't know of many of you that have been breathing murderous threats about Christians. Yet God has still saved you. Whatever, whatever your life before Christ looked like, maybe it was a life of, of just complete following the ways of the world. Maybe it was a life of moral righteousness where you were like, hey, I'm living a good life. God's going to approve of me. But whatever it looked like, somewhere along the line, it was re- revealed to you that Jesus died and rose again, that he has saved you. And in saving you, he has given you this ministry of reconciliation. He has given you this same kind of stewardship. See, the stewardship was given by grace. <clears throat> we, we don't earn it. It's something that's given to us. And Paul talks about this stewardship. Verse 3, he talks about the stewardship as a mystery. Now, we've covered this before. I kind of got ahead of myself the last few weeks. But when Paul uses the word mystery, he's not talking about like a murder mystery, like, you know, we got, it's a whodunit. Let's go figure it out. When Paul talks about a mystery, he is talking about a, a secret of God that for generations has been hidden, but now it has been revealed. This is what Paul is speaking of here. This stewardship, this mystery. And this this mystery has been revealed. The secret has been revealed. He said, it was made known to me by revelation. Now, we're going to talk about that mystery a little bit more in a second. Because the second aspect of this is, not only was the stewardship received by grace, but I would argue that the stewardship was God's grace. What is this stewardship? What is it that Paul was entrusted with? What is it that you and I have been given, not because we've earned it, but we've been given to it and it's owned by God? Well, what is it but his grace? This is what we saw in chapter two, the first 10 verses. We, we labored over this reality, right? Chapter two teaches us that by grace you have been saved, not of your own work, so that no one can boast, This is the stewardship. The stewardship is, look at this. This is amazing. God comes and he gives you his grace. He says that through Jesus and his death and resurrection, you are now rescued from an eternity separated from God. You are now brought into the family. You are now made new. You are now made alive. And not only has he done all of this, but he now calls you to live as one who takes that very grace and shares it with other people. See, the stewardship you have, the, the grace that you've been given, the, the worst reaction is to say, oh, thanks for the grace, God. I'm going to keep it all to myself. Just me and Jesus, me and my grace. It's like that song, this little light of mine. You, you going to cover it? You going to hide it? No, this mystery, this grace has been revealed. What are we going to do? We're going to say, look at, look at this grace that has been given to me. And look at this grace that can be given to you. This stewardship is actually God's grace. I mean, just follow along. Verses 4 and 5. Paul says, when you read this, remember, this letter was written to a church in Ephesus, and they would publicly be reading this letter. It says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. Look, for centuries, the prophets have had hints about this mystery. For centuries, the prophets have had an idea, an inkling, but they had no real clarity of what it would look like. In previous generations, it had not been made known 
as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This revelation, this, this giving of new truth, all of this new truth is about this mystery, and this mystery is the person and work of Jesus Christ. What the stewardship is, is Christ. What the stewardship is, is his grace. In fact, what the stewardship is, ultimately is being part of this church. Being part of the church. Look at verse 6. It says, this mystery, here you go. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, this is, this is what the mystery is. The mystery is that there is, there is now one church. The mystery is that there is now one new man. The mystery is that this church, it's no longer Jews over here and Gentiles over here. Remember chapter 2? There's no longer this dividing wall of access. There's no longer this dividing wall of hostility. Instead, there is, a, there is a vertical access between everyone and God, and there is a horizontal reconciliation. There's no more hostility between Jew and Gentile, between black and white, between male and female, between young and old. The dividing wall of hostility has been destroyed through the cross of Jesus Christ. This this all is summarized in those last few words, through the gospel. This is what the, the stewardship is. And so what you have here then is you, you realize this stewardship is given to you and it's not given to you for just your own happy-go-lucky sake. Finally, we see the stewardship is for the sake of others. When God gives this stewardship, it's so that you'll do something with it. Look at what Paul says, verse 2. Go back to verse 2. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, here you go, for you. Here's what God did. God said, Paul, I'm going to give you a stewardship and the stewardship is of God's grace and it's meant to benefit the Gentiles. Here's what God does in your life. He does the exact same thing. He says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to give you my grace. I'm going to save you and I'm going to do it for other people's sake. God says, I have called you by my grace to come and know me through Jesus Christ and I have done it so that you can lead your family to know and trust Christ. He says, I have called you by my grace and I have given you a stewardship and that stewardship is so when you go to work nine to five, Monday through Friday or whatever your shift is, I have given you that stewardship so that when you go to work, that stewardship is given to you for them. He's called you to participate in his, his work of his grace going out so everyone so that everyone could hear the most amazing news in the world. That there is a way. There is a way to be made right with God. There is a way for our guilt to be removed completely. There is a way for our shame to be healed. There is a way for us to have our sin forgiven. In this way, it was a mystery, but now it's been revealed. This way is the name of the person, Jesus Christ. See, I just want you to see Paul. He's trying to get to praying. <laughs> he's going he's to get there sooner or later. 
but he can't even start praying without letting this, this overflow of emotion spill out of him. And what we see is that he is, he, he's just writing to the Ephesians about what God has done in Christ. And right now in this just very brief biographical moment, we see that for him, what God has done in Christ, it has led him not only to be a slave of God, but to be a steward of God's grace. Do you think that way? Do you, do, you, do you realize that everything God has given you, you are called to be a steward of that? He's called you to live as his steward. Let's look at one more description. One more aspect of the believer in Christ of their life when they realize what God has done for them in Christ. The, the final point here is that when we see what God has done in Christ, we become willing servants of others. Not only are we slaves to God, not only are we stewards of this mystery, of this grace, but finally we, we become servants of each other. Go, go back to verse 1. Go back to verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, for this reason. Remember the reason? The wall of hostility broken down. The wall of access broken down. The fact that we have gone from death to life because of the work of Jesus Christ. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Here it is. On behalf of you Gentiles. Paul's a prisoner of Christ. But, but he, it's because of his service to the Gentiles. But Paul is a prisoner of Christ, but it's because of his willingness to care more about others than care about himself. It was because of his willingness to serve others rather than do what would be easy for himself. He says, on behalf of you Gentiles. See, Paul, Paul is known as the apostle of the Gentiles. Now, this is one of the greatest jokes in the New Testament, right? Because if you know much about Paul, Paul was, um, let's just say he was not a lover of Gentiles. Paul was as Jewish as you could get, right? And, I mean, if Paul was a 21st century American, he would have the biggest truck and he would have three American flags hanging off the back of it driving around, right? That's how American he would be, right? You guys getting what I'm saying? I'm not saying anything bad about that, but he was, he was that guy. He was as Jewish as you could get. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was, he was circumcised on the eighth day like any good Jewish person. In fact, he was, he was a Pharisee. He was, in accordance with the law, he considered himself blameless. He was a persecutor of all those who stood in, in opposition to the Jewish faith. This led him to give approval to the very first Christian martyr. This led him to go door to door, as we said earlier, breathing murderous threats. And this means that he, just like every good Jewish boy, he had that deep-seated animosity and hatred toward the Gentiles. And you know what the Lord did when he rescued Paul? He said, I'm going to rescue you, Paul. Someone who probably had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Not, not the names, every word. Someone who was wired 
to be a missionary extraordinaire to the Jewish people. You want to know what God did with him? He says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you the apostle to the Gentiles. And not only was Paul an apostle to the Gentiles, but Paul was in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. His chains were because he accepted the mission to share the gospel with Gentiles. His chains were simply put because he was willing to be a servant of others. What, what did this work accomplish? What did Paul's work as an apostle to the Gentiles, as someone who preached the gospel to the Gentiles, what did it accomplish? Look at verse 6 again. It says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Here's what Paul's work accomplished. It worked in accomplishing letting, letting countless Gentiles know that they could be included. I mean, look at these three descriptions. I'm just going to go quickly over these. But it says, God has made us fellow heirs. This means we're all part of the same family. Jew and Gentile, black and white, male or female, young or old. We are all part of the same family. In fact, we're part of the same family that all have the same inheritance. That same inheritance is an eternity together with Christ. God has made us members of the same body. That means we're all part of the same church. You know, we have three services at Valley, right? And sometimes people like fall into a groove where they're Saturday night or they're Sunday morning. And that's fine. That's, that's totally fine, right? But here's the deal. You're part of the same church of everyone that's part of Valley. And you want to know what's even more? You're part of the same church as, as you know, whatever church down the road preaches the same gospel. First Baptist Church down the road or, or Calvary Community the other way. Those churches, they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guess what? We're part of the same church as them. And what's more? We're part of the same church in, well, in China that meets in secret. They stagger in one or two people at a time. They don't walk in pairs or they don't walk in many people and they come in the cover of night and they can't sing too loud because they don't want anyone to know that they're a church that's gathering for worship. We're part of that same church as well. See, the point of this is that God has, has made us part of the same church. And then it says, God has made us partakers of the promise. This means that we all have the same salvation and the same spirit. Let me, let, me, let me just apply this for a quick second. This means that we, we are all so joined together and we will be for all eternity that we should probably get used to serving each other now. We should probably get used to liking each other now. You know that brother or sister in the Lord that you have that animosity with, that you kind of uh, you don't hang out very often, or you kind of avoid each other? I can't wait to see you guys as next-door neighbors in heaven. Maybe even roommates. <laughs> That'd be even better. We share all this together, church. And to share it together well means we fall into the same pattern the Apostle Paul fell into. When he 
When he understood all that God had done in Christ for him, he was willing to serve those who before he knew Christ, he would probably not have even spoken to. This is how we're to treat each other. We're to serve. You know, my, my kids and I, we read, uh, we read you know, uh, fiction together pretty regularly, and we're going through a book right now, a book series. It's our second time through it because they, uh, they published the fourth book in the series, and we'd forgotten most of what happened in the first three books, and so we have to reread the first three to get to the fourth, right? But there's one line from this book that I can tell you about, and, and it's repeated in all the books. The book series is called The Green Ember. And in the story, there's the, these good guys and they're battling bad guys. I won't get into all the details, but there's a refrain, there's a line that these warriors, they say over and over again. In the line, they say this. They say, my place beside you, my blood for yours, till the green ember rises or to the end of the world. And this is their battle cry, but this is what they say to each other over and over again. It's the way they indicate that they are dedicated to each other, that they would die for each other, that they will go to battle, and they would rather fall than let their brother in arms fall instead. And sometimes in the church, we just want to be petty and hold on to grudges. Or sometimes in the church, we just want to be served and do our own thing. We just want to come and listen and leave and not engage. This isn't how the person who has seen all that God has done for them in Christ lives. No, 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 no. When we see all that God has done for us in Christ, we become willing servants of others. Are you, are you living as a willing servant of others? You know, last week I mentioned the teenagers and how, how, uh, how often we see them serve. I'll tell you what, I, I see teenagers out-serving adults over and over again in the church. That's not saying anything bad about the adults. I, I actually just am trying to honor them. If there's a need, nine times out of ten, the first person moving toward it is one of these ones right here. But how about each of us and our service toward each other? Let me end with this. How do you make this your own? We have seen the Apostle Paul. Remember, he's trying to get to praying, but he's not quite there yet because he's got all this kind of stored up in him that he has to get out. And what we have is we don't have, hey, you have to do this. Well, instead, this is not a prescription. Instead, what this is, this is just a description of a life that is passionately serving the Lord. How do you make this your life? Let, let me ask you first, are you a slave to Christ? Are you a slave to Christ? How do you know if you're a slave to Christ? Let me give you three indicators that your life is becoming more and more uh, the life of a slave to Christ. Here's your first word, holiness. Are you, are you growing in holiness? Is your life a life that's aimed at sinful desires? Or, or is striving toward Purity. Are, are you accountable with your sin? Do you confess your sin to a brother or sister in Christ when you, when you fall into it? Listen, uh, here's the one thing I know about everyone in this room. We're all sinners. But when you sin, do you hide it? Do you cover up? Do you make excuses for it? Or do you confess it? Here's the next word, habits. Habits. Are, are you developing Christian thinking and practices? 
Are you habitually letting the word of God fill your mind and fill your heart? Do you have habits of of praying on your own and praying with your family? This is why we introduced the hymn of the month. This is simply us trying to help you as a family have a habit that is rooted in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this next week when you sing, a mighty fortress is our God, you know what you're doing in that moment? You're growing as a slave to Christ. Here's your third word, heart. Heart. Does the Lord have your affection? Or do the things of this world have your affection? I mean, I stood up here and I was bragging on the Mariners a little bit ago, but at the end of the day, I have to ask myself, do do I love sports and entertainment more than I love the Lord? Would I be willing to miss things of the Lord consistently to, to pursue things of this world? When I look at my calendar, I can tell if the Lord has my heart. When I look at my spending, I can tell if the Lord has my heart. Are you a slave to Christ? Holiness, habits, and heart. Here's your next question. Are you a steward of the gospel? Are you a steward of the gospel? Are you living a life that is trying to pass the grace of God to other people? Here's your three words. This comes right out of what we talked about this last Sunday night when we met for Thriving Valley. Here are the three words. I'm going to give them to you all at once. Pray, pursue, persuade. Are you praying for non-believers? Are you praying for their soul? Are you praying for their salvation? Are you praying for spiritual conversations? The next one is pursue. Are you pursuing them? Are you asking them things like, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Hey, are you a spiritual person? Hey, what do you think about eternity? Are, are you engaging with them about the gospel? And finally, persuade. Are you actually trying to persuade someone about the truth of the gospel? Pray, pursue, persuade. Are you a steward of God's grace or are you just holding it all to yourself? And your last question. Are you a servant of others? Are you a servant of others? How, how do you know if you're a servant of others? Well, first of all, do you have a humble attitude? Philippians tells us to think of others as better than ourselves. Do you go into every conversation like, I'm better than this person, or what I think is better than this person, or what I know is better than what this person knows? Or are you, are you interested in them? Do you, do you have a humble attitude? Second is, do you have helping actions? Do you actually do things that serve other people? <laughs> When you hear of a need, are you like, hey, how can I help? Is your, is your go-to response when someone has a need, I'll pray for you, and then you walk away. Do you have actions in your life that you can look at and say, I am doing things that bless other people, and I'm doing it in the name of Jesus. Finally, hopeful appeal. See, you can do good things for people all day long, but if you never appeal to them with the hope of the gospel, you're actually not helping them big picture. You're a servant that's missing the point. See, the point today, this evening's message, what Christ has done for you changes what you will do for others. How is he changing your life? Now, I know a message like this, this is heavy. I want us to remember the Apostle Paul, he wasn't a rookie Christian in this moment. He was pretty seasoned. 
You might be looking at this and might be saying, Mike, I am such, I'm such a wreck. I don't even come close. Listen, this isn't meant to heap guilt on you. You've been set free from your guilt. But what this is meant to give you tonight, this is meant to give you a vision of your life as you grow in Christ. Tonight, my appeal to you is just to behold all that God has done for you in Christ and then set your attention at being a slave to Christ, being a steward of his grace, and being a servant of others. Let me pray for you. Wow, Father, we are, we are amazed at what your grace did in Paul's life. You took him from being someone who violently opposed the gospel to someone who passionately served as your slave, stewarding the gospel of grace. And Lord, tonight we come to you and we ask that you would do the same work in our lives. Father, we open up our hearts to you and we invite you to come and to change us. Father, let us see our lives as lives that are to be lived as your slave. Father, we, we accept this role freely because we know that you are a good master, that you bless us more than we can ever imagine. And Lord, we just want to turn around and we want to serve you and do your will. Father, we confess that sometimes we're selfish. Sometimes we get distracted. But in this moment, Father, we, we recognize you're calling us back to this, this singular devotion to live as your slaves. Father, we also accept this responsibility, this stewardship of the gospel Father, we want our lives to count for eternity. We want our lives to be lives that have taken this grace that you've given us and we have boldly, humbly, lovingly given it to others. Lord, mold us into those who are willing to steward your grace. And Father, we, we also ask that you would make us those who are your servants, who, who are your servants who ultimately serve each other who are quick whenever we see someone in need, we are so quick to come alongside them. Whether it's a physical need that we can meet or even a spiritual need, a need of encouragement, a need of teaching, a need of companionship, a need of, of friendship, a need of loving words. Father, I pray that you would help us to become a people who serve one another and who serve the community around us Lord, we give our lives to you because Christ has given his life for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.